You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. All right. Buenas noches. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome to City Lights Live. It's wonderful to see so many beautiful faces here in the Zoom Mundo with us tonight. For those of you that know, who doesn't know, we are uh, celebrating uh, the release of Farah Jasmine Griffin's new beautiful book, Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature. So this is going to be a beautiful event. This is part of our virtual reading series that City Lights has continued to do in the footsteps of this pandemico. Back in the day, we used to do our little gatherings here in the poetry room, but now we're all in the Zoom world, connected in some strange way. So We've continued to bring you authors uh, through the Zoom world that we know and love with readings, discussions, symposiums, and much, much more into the fall season. As many of you know, uh, not only is City Lights a bookstore, but we're also a publisher. Uh, and we continue to publish in the grand tradition of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, whose office I am broadcasting from right now, sending you all some, some Lawrence love from here. Um, yeah, we recently published a, a new book of poetry from the current Poet Laureate, the one and only Tongo Eisen Martin. We also have Todd Miller's new book. Oh yeah, give Tongo his due, y'all. Give Tongo his due. Woo. You, could throw, you could throw this book in a tank and it would explode. I kid you not. <laughs> I'm also very proud that uh, we've got uh, Miller's new book, Build Bridges, Not Walls, was just published. Stan Cox's The Path to a Livable Future. And we have a beautiful edition that we're so proud of, Diane DePrima's uh, 50th anniversary of Revolutionary Leathers. So, um, yeah, yeah, check out these and more new books at our brand spanking new webpage, www.citylights.com. And for those of you that don't know, the bookstore has been open for regular business hours now for months, 12 days, seven days a week. Mass are required well in the store. So if you are in La Via Bahia, if you're in San Francisco, come on by and say hi, because... Real talk here, y'all. The bookstore has missed you all tremendously. I talk to the bookstore regularly, and I can, uh, I can, I can confirm that fact. Okay, now, we get that out of the way. Let's just say that here tonight in the Zoom Mundo, we are so excited for the release of Afara Jasmine Griffin's wonderful new book, Read Until You Understand, The Profound Wisdom of Black Life and Literature, published by W.W. Norton. And if this wasn't enough, joining Farah tonight in conversation will be Robin D.G. Kelly, y'all. This is going to be so good. It's going to be so good. Now, let me just read these bios real quick so we get to it. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Farah Jasmine Griffin is a professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of Who Set You Flowing? The African-American Migration Narrative and the co-editor of A Stranger in the Village, Two Centuries of African-American Travel Writings. Farah has been the recipient of fellowships from the Ford Foundation and the Bunting Institute at Radcliffe College. She lives in Philly. And joining her in conversation tonight, Robin D.G. Kelly is a scholar, scholar history of social movements in the US, the African diaspora and Africa, black intellectuals, music and visual culture, surrealism, Marxism, among a few other things. Robin's essays have appeared in a wide variety of professional journals, as well as general publications, including the Journal of American History, American Historical Review, The Nation, Monthly Review, New York Times, Color Lines, Counterpunch, Souls, Black Renaissance, Renaissance Noir, 
Social Text, The Black Scholar, Journal of Palestine Studies, and the Boston yeah. Review. And other Rob things. Is contributing editor. Oh no, we gonna get them yes. all in there. Rob. Oh no, no, you don't have to. You don't have to. That's that's actually great. There's nothing else okay. to say. There's nothing else to say. Robin is the author. I'm gonna say one more thing. Robin is the author of numerous books and has received wide critical acclaim for his work. So tonight, people, please give a warm Zoom window welcome for Farah and Robin in conversation. Thanks, Josiah. This this is great. Of course, Farah has since left Philadelphia and now is <laughs> in New York at Club. Speaking of which, of course, before I begin, of course, we have to acknowledge that Tongo was our student he was at our Columbia. Student. He was, was our our student. student, exactly. Exactly. Claim exactly. Him. Yes. We, we claim him. Yes. <laughs> this brilliant, amazing brilliant. poet yes. and we're so proud of him. Um, but I'm so proud to be here with Really, it's like my longest running friend inside this thing called the Academy, which has taken up so, so much of my life. This person who I love so much, who I thought I knew, and then I read this book. But let me just, let's just, let me just begin by just saying a few things. You know, I heard, I remember talking, I mean, I talked to Farrah a lot about uh, the work she's doing. I knew she was working on this book, but I didn't really understand it. Of course, I had to read it to understand and I discovered, as you will discover, which is why no one should leave this conversation without buying the book, is that it's not what I expected. You know, people are framing it as a kind of, you, you take a course with, with Professor Griffin in African-American literature, you walk she through, but it's not just, it's not that. Of course, she's a brilliant teacher. You do, you know, uh, encounter these extraordinary interpretations of not just, literary classics and African-American tradition, but all kinds of literary expressions. But it's more than that. This is a memoir. This is a family story. This is a story of your father and your mother and growing up in a world of Black life and love and art and politics. It's a history of Philadelphia, which I didn't know. Um, it is uh, a, a really expansive reclamation of the oral tradition and the musical tradition as part of literature. It is a journey that is unlike any journeys I've ever taken. And, you know, I love everything that Ferry's ever written. I mean, I teach all her work. This book is, is, has transported me in many ways. And I just, I can't even express what that means. You know, I mean, who, who, who's walking around Philadelphia and runs into Tony Cade sitting down? <laughs> like, oh, I, yes, I know you. And has a conversation. So, let me just begin. I have a billion questions, but I want to begin with one question, which really struck me. Um, and it's really a kind of a big question about, about your life in, in, in literature, your life in art. So this, so what really struck me is that it's the way that your intellectual life and your home life and your world were organic like completely organic, rooted. You know how many autobiographical narratives of Black intellectuals have a kind of bifurcated world? It's like, here's the world of the library and the school and my people over here didn't have to come back into the hood and have to code switch and all this stuff. There's none of that. You have a rich intellectual and artistic life in every place you go. And you've got teachers everywhere beginning with your father. And I, I don't want to give away too much, but can you just talk about that, especially 
writing this, writing your story in this story the way you have, knowing that this is a common trope in much of a kind of, especially black intellectual uh, narratives. You know? Yeah, well, first of all, just thank you. I am, it just feels so good to be talking to you. And I, you know, I'll just like say it in front of everybody. I miss you so much. And so I'm thrilled to have this chance to, um, to talk with you. So yes, one of the things that I wanted to do with the book when I when I was thinking about writing it was um, I thought you know I I've been studying formerly literature for years and teaching it for decades and keeping up with all the different ways we learn to read novels and fiction and um, you know all the kind of theoretical interventions, um, but that there was a way that books these books, these kinds of books had meaning to me before I ever encountered those formal ways of studying them. And that it was a meaning that I was given as, as a child outside of, you know, even outside of school, actually. Um, and I was given to it, it was given to me by my father who taught me how to read, who gave me my first, you know, made sure I got my first library card when I was three years old and who took me on weekly trips to the library. And then later on, after he died, who left just closets full of books. And so my first encounter with books, before I even knew what a canon was, my first encounter with books that would become canonical was you know, in a little closet of paperback books that my father had. And so you're right, I wanted to sort of reclaim that sensibility that, um, there were books, there were readers, there were intellectual conversations and debates in restaurants and barbershops and on the corner and in our house. And that um, those ways of thinking gave meaning to these books that I think right. have something to teach us still. Right, right. Well, it's amazing how the lessons you are able to, to garner from uh, real life experiences, whether it's you know, mourning your father's passing in the way that unfolded, the way communities came together. And it's literally, is kind of a mirror image of what you're also reading. In other words, there's a way in which you, your own memories and experiences with the community that really loved you, that loved each other, I should say, that wasn't dysfunctional, that um, we're all intellectuals in their own way. And that's the other thing, it's like, there's, there's no real hierarchy. There's a way in which people are sharing and teaching one another and learning and, and making huge mistakes as we all do, as we move through, through life. But I'm wondering if you can talk about like coming to this book, whether or not this book is a kind of an accumulation of witness, that is an accumulation of witness of saying, okay, well, wait a second, this, you know, Sula's familiar in many ways and not, you know, um, uh, a lesson before dying, like I, I know that, is how much of, of your decision to make this a kind of memoir that's, that's woven together about recognizing the, um, the authenticity of the stories you read and how much of that and at what point is it sort of the opposite, where the stories you read actually are kind of ruptures of, of the world that you know? 
I'm wondering if you could just talk about that. Yeah, oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, so I think, you know, being inquisitive, I went, to, I went to those books looking for answers and I went to those books looking for explanations and maybe sometimes finding things that weren't necessarily there or the, or the answer was in my interpretation of what I was reading, but feeling welcomed by those books, right? Um, and I think that what they did for me was um, they told me that my life, the life that I witnessed, ordinary Black people who were flawed, mm -hmm. not dysfunctional, but flawed because they were humans, right? Um, but who love deeply and laugh deeply that that world was also the world of the subject of art, right? That that's what Morrison and Baldwin and um, Ernest Gaines and others taught me that the world was the subject of art, that you could make, you know, it was already artful and that you right. could make art out of that life. And that there was, and, and taught me how to look for the kind of wisdom, the philosophies, the worldviews that people expressed every single day. So um, I think that's, you know, the literature was a place that I went to looking for answers. I went looking for my father in the literature. I went wondering what he, having conversations in my head with him over the literature. And also seeing that, you know, the stories that were being told were singular. They were works of the imagination. They were um, created by these extraordinary writers, but they were created out of a context that I recognized um, that was familiar and that wasn't just about degradation, right? But that was also about beauty and transcendence and all those things that art can be about. Right. That's beautiful. And there, there's, so, there's so many moments in the book where, um, where I was, I, I, I have to confess this because since we've known each other for so long, yeah. I'm like, you work for Alien Higginbotham <laughs> as a as a girl, you know, like really, like how like how does that happen? H how do you move in these circles? How do you like? And, and so this this actually leads me to a question that I had, and it's it's something that kind of runs through every chapter. Well, of, of course, I was like, and your family owned a restaurant, <laughs> like I, so much. But there's one thing that that really interests me is the way that you navigated um, as a young person and even as an older person, a world where you, you it seemed like you never, you never felt less than, I mean, even amongst the, the, you know, the white elite, basically, you never felt less than. You, were, you navigated across these class lines. Um, we know that they existed but the value you found in everyone that you dealt with, especially your working class community in Philadelphia, the value, like there's so much value there. And then by the time you move into like magnet schools, elite schools, it's like you're armed. <laughs> it's like you're, you're prepared, like nothing. And I don't know people like that, I, except for you, obviously, that did you ever have any sense in, uh, in your classroom experiences or in your um, intellectual engagement where like you feel like someone like you're being tested or you feel like you don't belong that that was so striking to me like every place you went you did belong yeah that's unusual 
Well, you know, it's funny, like when you say you knew Leon Higginbotham, I feel like in some ways I feel like Forrest Gump or like, you know, <laughs> Barry Waldo, right? Like I just end up and I meet these people and I know these people. Um, but it also says a lot about Black Philadelphia, right? So I end up working for Leon Higginbotham, who becomes like my godfather because I'm a kid who's in a program called AFNA that mm. is a program to takes kids and gives them enrichment and and then if they don't need the extra classwork, it puts it places them with professionals. And they're all these black professionals who are like, I wanna, I wanna have one of these kids place with me. And they were everywhere, from like the person who was a neighborhood lawyer to a federal court judge. And Judge Higginbotham would always have students place with him. And I happened to be the first girl who got placed with him. Mm -hmm. um, so I never felt like I didn't belong anywhere. And that was probably, you know, and I didn't feel like better than anybody. Right. I just felt like you know, if I, if given a chance, I'll do my best. Like I, my thing was, I won't be the smartest girl in the class, but I'll be one of the smartest girls. Like I'm gonna be okay, you know? And I think that what I also noticed, what became clear to me because I had so much respect for where I came from in every step of the way, like from that first little neighborhood school in the hood, there were kids who were smarter than me. And I knew that, right? There were kids who were as smart as me, but there were plenty who were smarter. And so by the time I got to the elite girls school, I, I knew, I was like, I know people who are as smart, if not smarter than you, than you are. Um, they might not speak standard English, but in terms right. of thinking, like, you know, I wasn't even the smartest kid in my family. Like, mm -hmm. so I think it was that sense of, we're all kind of, we're not, you know, we don't have equal opportunity. But in terms of what we come into the world with, it's pretty evenly scattered, you know, right. in terms of mediocrity <laughs> and intel, it's even. And then it's what okay. you have access to, what you can do with it. So I think that's what really helped. And then I just felt like, um, you know, it's not that the community I came from was perfect or even always safe or anything, but I did feel protected and I felt very supported and nurtured, even as I was making that move into those other places. Um, so I felt like I needed to represent <laughs> right. and witness that there's a whole bunch of me's there. It just aren't here right now. Yeah, I, I try not to get nostalgic about stuff like this, but you know, I've always wondered how much of that's generational because so many of your experiences remind me of mine, especially living in, in Washington Heights in the late 60s, early 70s. And what that was like, where you you knew your neighbors, and um, but also what it was like to go from house to house and discover that everyone had a library of sorts, whether that library was, you know, the Fawcett paperback books, or whether that library was every copy of Ebony and Jet and Our World and all that stuff. But they're libraries; they're, they're texts. And I'm wondering, um, in terms of your discovery of literature, you know, now I'm thinking about the, the novel and poetry, and, and you tell this story in the book, um, you know, and, I, and I'm thinking specifically about Toni Morrison, because there's a point in the book where you say, you know, Toni Morrison, Sula changed everything. It's like a turning point for you. What what happened? I mean, if you like, what what was the thing at that moment of encounter that flipped it for you? Yeah. Was it that 
um, did Tony's work seem like a challenge in a way that some of the other work was, wasn't so much, or was it revelatory? I'm just wondering if you could sort of talk about what it means to encounter Toni Morrison in the midst of, of having read all this stuff. Yeah, so um, I think it was she was all those things. You know, I was I was about thirteen years old, and and the way that I encountered her, I think, is significant. That summertime, girls on the block playing double dutch, you know, talking about stuff and gossiping, and and then we had these little books that we'd exchange, and and a lot of them actually came from the public library that people didn't return, so they still had like the library card in them or something. So we had these books, and mostly, you know a lot of books passed through our hands, like Daddy Was a Number Runner passed mm. through our hands and Howard Street passed through our hands and Black Boy, I remember, came through. And then Sula was one of those books that we were passing around. And I remember reading it and just being like, oh my God, like one, I didn't really understand all of it. So mm -hmm. that, I read it again and again and again. Two, it just was so beautiful. I wanted to read it out loud. Sula was like no one I had ever read about in my life, but she was kind of reminded me of my Aunt Eunice. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, like I could imagine her, my Aunt Eunice. Like when I when I saw Sula, when I read Sula, I could see my aunt in those pages, you know. Um, and so I think it was just wanting to go back over and over and read it and be immersed in that world. Like I didn't want it to end. And then there were things that were familiar, like, you know, Dixie Peach hair grease, like, like actually encountering that on the pages of a book, you know, later on. And so it was from both, both a familiar world, but it made, it made my world recognizable, but also defamiliarized it. Right. And said, you know, these people think deep thoughts. And then when I went, went on and I went to high school and I started reading the canonical, you know, Dostoevsky and all those people, I was like, wow, Tony is as good as all of these people. <laughs> and like, she's just, um, she's just giving depth and complexity or revealing mm -hmm. depth and complexity of the kinds of worlds that I inhabit. And I was so grateful for that. Right. It was life changing. Right. It was like a light went on, you know? Right. That's amazing. I, I was, I just happened to look at the chat and I think I, it says Nell's phone. So I wonder if this is Nell Painter. I don't know. If it is, I, I miss you. Um, but she had a question to say, but it, it was so relevant onto what I asked, but it was really about, um, I talk about, you know, my generation or our generation, and she asked, I wonder how Farah feels in our generation vis-a-vis -vis her father's generation and her student's generation in today's writing. Wow, wow. And that's a good segue to what I'm going to ask you that we're going to read. I think, you know, I mean, I think today's writing is amazing. I think we're in the middle of, you know, there's just some extraordinary work coming out. Absolutely. And I think that um, people are reading again. People are actually reading mm -hmm. again, which is so good. My father, you know, I don't know when he fell in love with books. I don't know how old he was. I know that by the time he was a young man and a teenager, he was really into jazz and bebop. And that culture, that bebop culture that, you know, my father used to turn the corner whistling a phrase from like a bird boom. <laughs> That's how I knew he was coming home. Like. You know, he through and through, like mm -hmm. everything was for him was was the music. And um, but they prided themselves on being intellectuals. 
you know, even right. even like even to the point of being pretentious intellectual, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> pride themselves on being intellectual. So that was so much a part of his youthful identity, right. and it wasn't like being square; right. it was being hip. You know, <laughs> it was being hip. Um, and so I would hope that that might continue to be the case here. But I think I do think that we're in a moment when people are reading and where writing is extraordinary. And mm-hmm. I meet young people all the time in my my students, but mostly I meet young people on social media who hit me up and about what they're reading and um, really exciting critical conversations going on with them about mm-hmm. what they're reading. Yeah, well, you, you know, you're, what's amazing about your text as well is that it is really contemporary. I mean, it's both in terms of the classic text, but you're dealing with texts that are really real texts. Obama's speech, the Reverend Wright controversy, uh, Tamika Mallory and Kimberly Jones, um, the way in which these texts are continually new Jeremiah's coming into, into, into being. So speaking of reading, I would love for you to take this opportunity so people could hear your beautiful words. And I know you're gonna pick whatever you're gonna pick, but I, but in thinking about what to pick, uh, you know, I was, I was haunted by, you know, for Black people, America is a loveless place, mm-hmm. you know, which I know is, is later in the book, but, I, but early on you talk uh, beautifully about Black freedom and the ideal of America, yeah. which is a major theme. Yeah, so I will, I'll read a little bit from that chapter, which is the third chapter, I think, in the book. And um, I'll skip around in it a little bit, but, but just, just, just a little to give you a sense of the, um, the, some of the autobiographical writing and also where the title of the book comes from. Okay. At some point in first or second grade, administrators from my neighborhood school reached out to my parents expressing concern that I refused to stand for the Star Spangled Banner during school assembly. I attended the neighborhood elementary school, McDaniel, less than a block from my home. It was predominantly black and sat diagonally across the street from St. Edmund, a Catholic school, which was predominantly Irish and Italian. I didn't sing the national anthem or say the Pledge of Allegiance because according to my father, our country refused to recognize us as full citizens or even as human beings. When my father died, my family decided not to request a flag for his coffin. He'd served in a segregated Navy just after World War II and was honorably discharged, but he never spoke to me about his service. It appears to have been a traumatic experience for him. My mother, ever the diplomat, instructed me to stand for both the anthem and the pledge, though I didn't have to sing the former or recite the latter. Just do like the little Jehovah's Witness boy does. The Jehovah's Witness she referred to was one of two or three remaining white students in the entire school. At one point, I resumed reciting the Pledge of Allegiance because I like reciting things from memory, and I especially like the sound of the declarative ending with liberty and justice for all. The Star Spangled Banner never held that kind of appeal for me since it's so militaristic and bombastic. Even today, I stand for it, but I do not sing it. The Star Spangled Banner is my least favorite of the patriotic American songs. Another My Country Tis of Thee has been forever ruined by my father's rewriting of the lyrics, My Country Tis of Thee, Land of No Liberty. In contrast, I've grown to love Woody Guthrie's This Land is Your Land because of its expansive, inclusive sense of the nation. However, America the Beautiful is the one that I find most appealing 
perhaps because of Ray Charles's soulful rendering or because of its portrayal of the country's wondrous natural beauty. I especially claim to appreciate the magnificent landscape after a cross country drive when I was a young adult. It is the one thing I love about this land without ambivalence. During my brief time with my father, I learned of his disdain for what he saw as the country's hypocrisy. Nonetheless, Emerson Griffin possessed a deep admiration for the founding documents and though critical, he held a kind of disdainful awe of U US military might. What I've learned of my father in the years following his death tells me that at some point, he was a bit more hopeful about the country's possibility for racial reconciliation. By word and example, my father taught me that protest and resistance were both personal and collective. We march, we stand, or we sit for what we believe and we read. He insisted that reading and study were central to our struggle as a people and to my overall development as a human being. One morning, before I left school, I was in third grade, my father gave me two paperback books. On the title page of Black Struggle, A History of the Negro in America by Brian Folks, he wrote, Jazzy, read this book. You may not understand it, but read it and understand, daddy. Baby, read it until you understand. Ask your teacher if you don't. The second book was a small paperback with a red, white, and blue cover titled The Little Red, White, and Blue Book of Revolutionary Quotations by Great Americans. He'd written notes, not on the title page, but within the book and placed asterisks by or parentheses around specific quotations. Start here, Jazz. There's lots of Frederick Douglass. That was so, that was so beautiful. And um, your, your father is such a central towering figure in this narrative. And by the way, does he still visit you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, and I know that he loves the, you in yellow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. right right which uh, you know I'm just I'm not giving away too much but of no, course you no. know you know this from the book yeah. um but you know his your father's such a towering figure and you know it's interesting that you the way you tell his story and your mother's story you know the way you tell their love story yeah. I'm just curious in terms of your own research and thinking about the book how much work did you do? In other words, what was the, the kind of archival psychic conversational work you did to reconstruct these memories? Because what's, what's wonderful too is that, you know, you're very honest about the things that you remember and the things that you don't remember. And of course, your mom is, is still there to, to be able to share what she knows. Yeah. Um, but how did you, how did you dig? And how did, your father become like, was he always a central uh, interlocutor and figure in the way you conceived of the book? Yeah, so he, he always was uh, um, because he, he always has been in my life, you know, even after his death and the way my mother kept him front and center, which she did oftentimes crediting him with things that were her choices, you know, mm. your daddy would want you to see this or we should, we should look at this opportunity because maybe your daddy would want that. Let's go to this school because, you know, like she would always bring him in. The book starts with him and ends with her. Um, but that, that's a good question. So I have, I have these memories and these things that I've written over and over and over again 
but I just never published them, right? I mean, I've been writing them all my life. But what, what I then did was, um, you know, I went to the archive, I went to all the old newspapers, and I think this happened this way, or what was this like, or what was going on in this mm -hmm. period? Like, in that chapter, I talk about a march that my father went to. And as a little girl, I thought it was like, as I was growing up, I was like, it was the March on Washington. And I'm like, it couldn't have been a March on Washington because I was like six months old. I wouldn't remember him coming home from the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. And then I remembered the pen that he wore. And I went and found the pen, which mm -hmm. I kept. And it was a march to integrate the Stephen Gerard School. And in fact, the day that he went, I think is a day that Martin Luther King came because they, um, they had been having, the, the local NAACP had been having marches every week at this place. So, you know, being able to piece that together or, you know, finding my parents' marriage, the announcement of their marriage license in the Philadelphia Inquirer. My mother didn't even know it was there. You know, the Philadelphia Tribune was of central importance for me. And then other things like, you know, so those kind of conventional archival ways of, of looking up things. And then, you know, I call, there are people who, my oldest friend in the world, I'm still very close to her. I was in the stroller and she was three, um, Cassandra. I would call her and say, did this happen? Am I making this up? Do you remember this? Or call a cousin who grew up with me. Was this in the restaurant or no? So that kind of interviewing my family and also consulting newspapers and books and things in the Philadelphia Library, all of that helped me basically tell a story that I already had the bones of, but it gave me the flesh to fill it right. out. Right. Yeah. I'm sure your mother's read the book. What does she think? So I, um, I initially sent her, before I even agreed that I was going to try to publish it, I sent her the opening pages, what became the opening pages. And, um, you know, and I reveal a lot about our life. Mm -hmm. And she, um, she called me, she said, I got this stuff you wrote, it's so beautiful. And she said, um, I love the way you write about your daddy. Oh, he would love it. You make him sound so good, you know? And she said, she said, reading it was like listening to Miles for me, which mm. is the highest compliment. That's the highest compliment you could possibly get. Exactly. <laughs> so I said, well, mommy, you know, I, re I revealed some things about our life, you know, is it okay? And she said, yeah, it's okay. She said, um, times have changed. And if you're gonna tell our story, you have to tell all of it. And so she gave me permission, you know? So this time around, now that it's out, she's been listening to it. And she really mm. likes listening to the parts about herself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet, I bet. That, la that last chapter is extraordinary. I mean, every chapter is extraordinary. But I, I, I have to say, I love, um, and I'm just going by memory here, um, but there's that moment where, you know, it is about disclosure and about your father's addiction. And yeah. she says, she says, you know, like, don't worry, I'll tell you, and I'll answer any question you have, but don't put our business in the streets. Your right. daddy love your daddy loves you. Yes. Right. Like that, that coda. Mm -hmm. it, it, it said everything. In fact, that that little exchange in many ways is for me, again, I'm, and by the way, I'm just riffing here. Um, that little exchange is in, in capsule form, so many of the themes that you pull out of all this literature. And here, 
um, I'm thinking about uh, mercy and grace and love and family, hospitality, death, mourning, rage, anger, you know, protection. And, you know, what does it mean to have to navigate all this stuff? It's all encapsulated there. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, before we get to the Q&A, um, just to ask you about some of these things, because, you know, I'm not a literary scholar, obviously. I, everything I know I learned from you, I just, you know, copy from you and just pretend like, you know, I came up with the idea. Actually, no, I give you credit. Um, but in, in many ways, it's not my field, but I also know that your interpretations are, are, are unique. You know, they're, they're not... Um, the theme, the themes, especially of mercy, grace, mercy and grace and love, um, death and mourning, of course, but the way you deal with death and mourning is very different. And I'm wondering how, whether or not these were themes that you just simply carried with you, or these themes were organizing um, elements that helped you figure out how to write the book, how to put it together. Yeah. Um, it's, so I think that... Um, you know, I was thinking about I want to make this I want to make this body of literature important to people and 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 to show them I don't have it is important to show them why it's important and to show them that it's not only because of the kinds of things we talk about in classrooms, but because it engages these big ideas, ideas that you know are even more it engages them more than it engages nation and race right like those things are important. But these big ideas um, mm -hmm. that impact us as human beings or as living beings, not just humans, but living beings. Um, and so there was a way that I thought I thought about those things in the literature, but I didn't write about the literature in that way. Right. I didn't teach it. So the only I've taught um, a course on black novels and justice. So that one, but but like mercy and grace and even love, the way that I write about love, it was a very different way of writing. I don't write, I haven't hadn't written about it as an academic in that way, but it was the way that I thought the literature spoke to me and to readers, you know. Um, and the other thing is, I think, you know, I didn't I didn't grow up in the church. Mm -hmm church was all around me, but I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't have a religious education. Although I later, you know, was fascinated by um, certain kind of religious and theological texts, which certainly informed my work. But I think that those questions that I had were questions that if I had a religious education, religion would have provided some answers. Uh huh. And in the absence of religion providing, this might be dangerous. In the absence of religion providing the answers, these writers provided some answers. You know, right? This this body of literature provided some answers for me. Do you, do you think that? Do you think that had any impact on who you were drawn to as writers? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, um, certainly Morrison and Baldwin. And you know, drawn to them more than I was drawn to write, mm -hmm. you know, um, Bambara. Yeah, I think I think absolutely it had something to do because they were, you know, they were dealing with these issues, and and Baldwin, mm -hmm. of course, is dealing with them from a 
and Mar Tony too, you know, from um, a kind of, you know, a Christian sensibility, um, but not a sensibility. What I loved about them is that it wasn't a fundamentalist sensibility. It wasn't a sensibility that used these sort of spiritual values to shut people down and say, you can't, you can't, you can't. Right. It was a sensibility that said, if your God is not making you expansive, right, it's not expansive, then that's not right. <laughs> right. So I think that's what I was drawn to. Exactly. Well, it's deeply spiritual and critical of the way that organized religion sometimes undermines our spirituality, you yes. know, and that's something that I think, you know, you, you really, you really tease out because, you know, one of the things that, that you, I mean, this is, this is really the fundamental sort of theme of the book is that there are lessons to be learned. And these are lessons about life. And there's a way in which you know, we come out of long-standing traditions where storytelling was the way we learned our lessons. Yes. You know, I mean, that's not even, that's not news. Everyone on this, you know, everyone knows that. And yet you, you, you elevate the, uh, this idea that in literature, literature is the storytelling for our lessons. And sometimes those lessons are completely anti-capitalist, yes. <laughs> completely anti antithetical to the kind of neoliberal individualism. Um, and it's it's about how to, it's like what Fred Moten writes about and thinks about, what a lot of us are trying to, what, what Eliezer Kelly, the, the great scholar, you know, I know, um, thinks about how to live together. How do we how live to be together? together. Yeah. Exactly, how do we live together? Um, how do we live as a community? How do we take care of each other? You know, um, it's, those are the constant questions. And, you know, I know that I was a recipient of a community who was under siege every day, right? But who came together to take care of this widow and her child in the best way they could, right? And so absolutely, how do we, how do we care for each other? And you know, how do we live with difference? Sometimes we're good at it, sometimes we're not. And how do we live with people who really despise us? Right. <laughs> and want to see us harm. Exactly. Like, you 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 were telling the truth though when you said like there's some people I just don't know how I could ever love. I do it. You know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, our, our time has come to a close. So we got all these questions and I'm looking through the chat. I'm like, all these friends and famous people and all these people who are like you know i'm just astounded great poets great poets great poets great writers so there's lots of questions i guess i i probably um need to go back and try to Josiah, i think Josiah is gonna is yes gonna... oh good good can you do the questions good because I, I don't want the responsibility of skipping <laughs> over somebody especially people i admire i i'm even so sorry to interrupt this this is amazing such a beautiful conversation. Um, you're right. You're right, Robin. You do need six hours at least. So we're going to work on that here. Uh, yeah, but there, there are several questions. Yeah, I'll just start with um, the first one. And that Nell from uh, Nell is asking. Uh, it's well, they're saying it's great to see you both. And together, thanks, Farah, for a wonderful book. Robin mentions generation. I wonder how Farah yeah. feels in our generation, vis-a-vis -vis her father's generation and her students' generation and today's writing. Yeah. And that's something that you were addressed. Yeah, you know, so Robin read that one. Yeah, I read that question because it was, no, Painter was my, my, my teacher. <laughs> yeah. um, 
not formally, but definitely my teacher. Um, so, so another one, although I see Frank Greedy. Yeah. Well, go ahead. Oh, well, well, there's a, here's, we'll start off easy then. Huh? Do you have any, uh, Brianna asks, do you have any advice for young writers to get their writings published and seen? Oh, wow. I mean, I think there's so many more ways of getting published now than there were when we were coming up, Robin, right? I mean, there, um, you know, there, there's so many venues and independent publishers and, um, it depends on what you're writing, but you know, people have these amazing blogs and mm -hmm. people are really taking control of getting their ideas out there. And I think that that's one of the good things about technology, right? Um, and certainly, you know, I, you know there, there's just a full range of possibilities. So I think, it's, I think that there's much more opportunity than it was when there were, you know, just fewer places um, for us. So, okay, Nathan uh, asks, how do you feel about carrying on or advancing your father's legacy in civil rights protest and resistance? I always hope that I, I do that, you know, I feel his spirit. I, you know, I, I write about, my father took me to my first Black Panther rally <laughs> when I was like five or six years old. Um, and so, I always feel his presence when I'm protesting, when I'm engaging in protests, when I'm engaging in organizing. Um, so I hope that that's carrying on his legacy. This book talks quite a, you know, quite a bit about the, our organizers, the creativity of our organizers in terms of the beauty of what they create for us and how they direct our rage in, the, in ways that are very similar to what writers do. So I hope I, I, hope I continue that legacy. Right. To quote, to quote Farah, um, the freedom fighters and justice seekers who have fought to make it less so have been motivated by a radical love modeling a new way of existing, even as they try to bring it into being. So that's, that's like a, that's a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's beautiful. Okay, another question. And by the way, I, I, before we leave, I guess I have to say a couple other things at the end, so. Um, Deborah Paradis. Des is asking, uh, saying uh, that she loves that this book pushes past the conventional boundaries of the genre of memoir and criticism. Uh, Farah, can you talk a bit about your journey, inspirations, models, et cetera, through and beyond genre? Yeah, that's a great question by a poet who does it so beautifully herself. So, um, you know, I just felt like there were, there were certain boundaries and genres that were, um, that were commercial, like, so where, where does this book fit in the bookstore, you know, um, but that they were artificial and that um, I just decided that I wasn't going to, um, I was gonna let the book tell me how it wanted to be written, you know, and I was gonna let the book tell me, and, 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 and there's, a, there's a kind of shape to every chapter that is the memoir, and then the memoir opens up into the readings, and then the readings open up into a kind of commentary about our political moment. And that just kept happening. It, it, it just kept happening once I respected the way the book wanted to be written and the stories wanted to be told. And they did not fit into one generic category, but they fit, it worked. Um, and so I think that's, that's what I, I just decided that at this stage in my life and my career, I just take that chance right. and write it the way I was hearing it. 
can I just add something to that? Because, you know, of course it worked. And it worked because, you know, I'm just, it's just struck me. Um, you don't, literature for you, in the, according to the book, is never an escape. You know, like think about all, again, all the narratives in which literature is a way to get away from something. But for you, literature is the path to confront something, to confront life. And so the, or, so, so I think about the, or, so the, or, the organic character of your life, you know, across these lines of, of space and class is like the organic character of literature and life itself. It's like it's all one. Yeah, right. You're, no, you're amazing. I was just like, you know, one of the things I thought, I thought they're going to really know how strange I am. <laughs> you know? It's going to be all on display that, you know, I've got, you know, like I see something and I'm thinking, oh, you know, I see little girls in a, in a um, train station and they're dressed a certain way. And I'm like, oh, they're like first Corinthians and blah, blah, blah. And Tony Mars <laughs> That's who they, that's what they look like. They've come to life right there. You know? But so, you know, that's not even weird. That's the truth. Yes. And I think this is, I think everyone else is weird. I mean, all the other, anyone who thinks that the literature is, is sort of on the shelf or in this yeah. space and at night in the bed, that that's sort of where it exists. And then you have your life yeah. or that literature is the escape. You, you actually demonstrate, this is exactly the title, read until you understand that is till you understand what you're dealing with in life. In life, right. And, and it's know? not a destination. Like you're, you're gonna have to keep doing it. Right. So See, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. I'm like, okay, now I need to start reading. I need to start reading more literature. Yeah. Ellie's eyes has been telling me this forever. She's right. been, you, well, she knows. She knows exactly, but she, you're, you know, she's your student. So um, giving away too much. Um, so Robin, and, why don't you take us out with a couple more questions so we can hear the two of you conversate some more because that's well amazing. i'm gonna I, I see evie shockley has a question um yeah yeah we'll, we'll, mariah dessa the, uh the great poet whose poem is in freedom dreams has has a great line that you know that's not even weird that's the truth <laughs> <laughs> that's a teacher. right there teacher um so evie i have to, to, to say the, the wonderful amazing poet evie shockley so yes. she says love your conversation fairy your childhood was shaped so beautifully by the gifts of reading that your parents and community gave you. How do you as a university professor approach teaching students who may have reached the college level without having that kind of relationship with literature? It's a great way to go out. Yeah, I think um, for me, you know, Evie, you do it too, right? We love, we love it. We love the language, we love the literature, we love it. And, and if, if we can just share that love Right, because I think the classroom is a space of love. I think teaching is an act of love, and it's love for our students and love for the material, um, even 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 material that is problematic. Right, it's being able to engage it in community together, the love of that. Right, um, and if you can create that for students, just for an hour a week, you know, or two hours a week, that's my goal. Right? is that together we're gonna we're gonna do this together and we're gonna be in community with each other and do it with an ethic of care for each other. Right. And hopefully, you know, they will step away from it having had a very rich experience. Right, exactly. That's so beautiful. Okay, so before we cut out, 
I just I, I just had to give some a couple of plugs here. First of all, um, everyone needs to buy needs to buy this book, um, and I would suggest strongly that you buy the book as a actual physical book, and then you listen to the audio book read by the great uh, Fairy Jasmine Griffin, who you know you know whether we never talked about you singing, but it's like a song. It's so beautiful. So I'm just saying, go and drive in your car. The second thing is just to acknowledge all of her accomplishments. She is the William B. Ransford, Ransford Professor of, of you know, African-American studies and, and English and, and American culture and all that stuff. And the founding director of the department, the first department of African-American and African diaspora studies um, at Columbia University and has done so much work for us, has trained so many students, has taught so many of us, has produced so many books that can't even begin um, in, in both 19th and 20th century. And it's just an extraordinary scholar and a wonderful friend and a beautiful soul. And we're all lucky. I know I'm the luckiest person on the planet to be able to have this conversation and to have spent the last basically almost three decades yeah. just hanging out and learning. Hanging out and talking, right? right. <laughs> Right. Yes. Thank you. And that that was my my little thing. So um any last words? Are we are we cutting out? I see everyone saying thank you, honestly. So much love in, in the comment chat, uh, for real. But unfortunately that's all we have time for for tonight. Please, please, people in the Zoom Mundo, give it up for Farah and Robin in this beautiful conversation. It was pure medicina, pure historia, pure yeah, just show, show some love on screen. There we are. There's all those beautiful yes. faces. And if you haven't already purchased Fair's incredible new libro, read until you understand the profound wisdom of black life and literature, do so now, please. Right. Get two copies, give this right. out. This is something you want to be circulating. From sure. City Lights, not from Amazon. Yeah, no, City Lights. Not do the Amazon, we do the City Lights. We do the City Lights. Um, right. Thank you so much, Robin and, and, and Farah, so much. This meant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Be safe, be well. Adios. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.